Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Yo, what's up? Welcome to Beyond the Brand Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Pabuda. I'll be joined today by our usual co-host, Alex Boudreau, as we welcome our first guest on to Beyond the Brand Podcast. You might know him from A Bronx Tale. You might know him as the actor who was involved in a killing of a cop. But we know him as Lilo Roncada. We got to know him really well. He went through his whole story with us, his whole background, um, basically from how he got started with Robert De Niro and the movie The Bronx Tale through his troubles and drug addiction. And now he takes us through his comeback into acting. And uh, we're pretty excited about it. So uh, Bruce, take it away. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time. Recording out of New York City, New York. Welcome to the undisputed greatest podcast in the world, Beyond the Brand. Let's uh, let's get right into it, man. Let's uh, let's start in the beginning. Um, as we were just discussed a little bit before we got you on camera here, um, you had told us that you were you were born in Colombia, right? And um, so, kind of take us through coming here and then being adopted, and, and take us through your upbringing a little bit growing up out there in Yonkers. Well, you know, I was adopted from Bogota, Colombia, uh, into an Italian family. My parents didn't think they could have any more kids, uh, and then they found out they were pregnant with my brother Vincent. Him and I are nine months apart. I uh, was adopted and raised in uh, and grew up in Yonkers, New York, which is like 20, 25 minutes outside the city. It's right next to the Bronx. Um, pretty much grew up in an Italian middle class family. Um, and then, you know, when I was 15 years old, I was just on the beach during my you know summer vacation. And that's when I was uh, discovered uh, to play the role uh, in Robert De Niro's uh, directorial debut in Bronx Tale to play the role of his son. And... Uh, well, they, they found, they discovered me there. I didn't get the part right then and there. But then I, you know, I auditioned. Uh, they liked what I did. I kept getting callbacks. Uh, eventually, <clears throat> um, I met Robert De Niro. He, he told me that he liked very much what I was doing with the character and to keep doing what I was doing. Um, and then I was working with him, like, every day. And we were doing different, you know, combinations of friends. And to see the best chemistry group they were also have had to find a girl for their role right. so there was a lot there was a lot a lot a lot of auditioning a lot went you know into making that film right. um eventually i got the role mm-hmm. it you know it was you remember the kid who shot sunny yeah. at the end of the film yeah, yeah. he was he was supposed to be my he was supposed to play c yeah. until they found me but he was older. He was 21 at the time. And I was like, you know, 15, going to be 16. Mm-hmm. And I guess ultimately they just decided that the film would work better with, you know, that character being a little younger, a little more naive. Yeah. It just worked better with the story. So they, you know, I, they cast me in the role. <clears throat> um, and little did we know when we were making that film that it was going to be a, a piece of, you know, cinema history. Yeah. yeah. Did you you guys realize in the moment, like, what you were, like, doing? Like, obviously, you know, Robert De Niro and, and, you know, Chaz Palmieri, but, like, did you realize kind of, like, when you were doing it that how big it was going to be eventually? Um, you know what? No, I didn't. 
because you know, like at that point in my life, I mean, that's like when you like reach the crossroad and which way do you go? Mm-hmm. I mean, not only that was that happening in my life, but now it's like I have this major motion picture in front of me right. where I'm the lead role. And it's a big responsibility for mm-hmm. someone, you know, who's 15, 16 years old yeah. to take on. You know what I mean? Especially because like Robert De Niro was like a, a childhood idol. Mm-hmm. And now it's like this guy's putting this film in my hands to play this role. And I love this guy and I can't let him down. I can't disappoint him. Yeah. So it was, you know, it, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a great opportunity. But I remember I was so stressed out mm-hmm. when we were making that film. That I wanted to be or like I ne- one thing that I always thought was that I did not want to let Robert De Niro down. Yeah. That he gave me this, you know, this this like better than winning the lotto, you know. And he yeah. gave me the opportunity of a lifetime. And the last thing I wanted to do was disappoint him. And uh, you know, I put a lot, I put a lot into that into that performance and just into that film. It was a lot, but you know, like you know, like like we like we spoke about. But you know, this many years later, we can look look back. He's so so proud of that film. And you had, like you said, you had you had no acting experience before this, right? You were discovered on the beach, if I if I read that correctly, right? Right. Um, and right. So, so kind of tell me that one, because I heard you did a little bit of a. You said you looked up to him, but a Robert De Niro impersonation to kind of solidify your opportunity to get in there. Brother called me out of the water because there was a guy handing out flyers. He was like a casting scout Mm -hmm. and was looking for kids to play his son. And this was like an Italian section at Jones Beach on Long Island. And it's crazy that guy covered me. I had not seen him in all of these years. I just saw him in January. I posted a picture with him. I posted a picture with him and I. His name was Marco Greco. I haven't seen him in all these years. And, uh... But yeah, you know, I mean, so then my brother calls me out of the water and he was like, hey, Lee, this is the guy for that movie. You know, they were talking because the Bronx State was like a big thing. Like they were going to like local high schools and there were like billboards and there was like flyers. So it was a pretty known thing. And I remember thinking about it and saying to myself, like, you know what? Like, I think I would be good in this role because I look like De Niro and I think that I would, you know, I'd be this role would fit me. But, you know, you think like it's such a long shot because it's like a film. It's like your idol and it'll never happen. So I didn't really think about it. And then they found me there on the beach and I started doing impersonations. I knew it was my shot. And then the guy invited me to the Belmont Playhouse to, uh, you know, to be put on tape to audition. And then, you know, eventually I, you know, kept getting callbacks and met De Niro. And then it was me versus the other kid who shot Sonny. I beat him up for the role. And then the role was mine. How um, supportive were your parents at the time? They were very supportive. I mean, my parents were immigrants. You know, they're often boat immigrants. Yeah. So, like, for them, like, they love De Niro. Like, who doesn't? What Italian doesn't <laughs> love De Niro? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's like they loved them. And my dad, my dad's around. Nah, he's a little younger, my dad, than De Niro. But they're basically, you know, and they used to, like, you know, just talk to each other on the set and speak in Italian. My parents were very supportive, but I don't think they knew yeah. All of the all, all of the possible potential danger that this can bring into yeah. my life, which it did, right. because then you got the drug, the alcohol, and the women, mm-hmm. and if you know you're not if you don't if you're not smart enough to be able to get through that, mm-hmm. and you know you make bad decisions behind that, you, you'll end up where I did. You know yeah. that's that's what happens. So, and my parents, like I said, they didn't know anything about drugs, and you know they're they're from Italy. Mm-hmm. They came here. They try to work hard and give us a better life. They weren't thinking about drugs and that stuff, so they didn't know to steer me away from that before it ever happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, 
and it's and I've also read this online as well. Um, Robert De Niro actually came to your house right before the movie was released and kind of tried to give you and your family a warning and like a heads up of how much your life was about to change. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, um, he came to my house. It was summer of '93, mm-hmm. basically to just warn us, like you know. I mean, you you know, like basically saying, like you know, I, you see all the attention you're getting, and this film hasn't even been released yet. Mm-hmm. He said, when this film comes out, he said, your lives are going to change overnight, and I just really want to be prepared for that because it's going to, you know, it's going to be very overwhelming. And uh, you know, I'm the, you know, I was younger, you know, so I, I just shrugged it off, and I'm thinking, nah, nothing's going to happen, mm-hmm. and I didn't, I didn't realize, and then it, my life really did change overnight. When that film was released and then like people start seeing you and know, oh my, you were that kid in that movie. Everything changes. Yeah. It's just life becomes so much different. Yeah. It's, that, it, it becomes so much easier. Yeah. Once that kind of stuff starts happening, life becomes so much easier. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't have to do anything for yourself anymore. Everybody wants to do something, everything for you. You know, I didn't need a license. I didn't get my license till I was 25 years old because everybody else wanted to drive me everywhere. You know, and then, and you were, you were young. Like you said, you were in 10th grade, like you were 15, 16 years old when the movie came out. Like, what was it? Were you still going to school when this happened? Were people like in school like an A or you getting like homeschool at this point? Because you you probably couldn't even be around. No, I kind of like, once the film came out and stuff like that, by then I dropped out. Yeah. Yeah. I dropped that, but I went back to school later on. I did earn an associate's degree in business. Yeah. So, but at that point in time, I did, uh, I did, I did just drop out. Yeah. I mean, it was just so hard not because it's like you know that move, that film came out, and then I was getting other roles, mm-hmm. and it's like there's no way I wanted to go to school. I was out every night of the week. I had money. I did whatever I wanted, yeah. and you know, it definitely a bad, you know, bad decision to do that so young and so early to grow up so fast because then there's nothing else to do everything that's age appropriate you already did when you were like you know less than that age Mm -hmm. and then you become bored and start you know when you become bored and you you start getting in trouble you know what what was it what did it mean to like your friends like your group of friends the guys you grew up with the neighborhood like people around like what what was it like that they knew you and and, because you know a lot of people the people around them are the ones who are might even be more excited than, than the actual person who's going out and doing all these things Proud to know you. Well, yeah, you you certainly have that. You know, you got all these people that uh, you know, like you know, people. You'd be so surprised the people that just they come out of the woodwork, yeah. like when this when this kind of stuff happens to you or mm-hmm. to someone, you know. And then it's just like everybody comes out of the woodwork. Everyone wants to be your friend and stuff like that. But I, you know, I did have my my group of tight knit friends who I'm still friends with today. And that, uh, you know, even in my darkest days, they never left my side, which I'm, you know, very thankful for, you know. And then from there, like, as you mentioned briefly, you started, you know, becoming like a premier name in Hollywood. You know, you started um, acting in movies with Denzel, Mark Wahlberg, uh, Danny DeVito, Gene Hackman, John Voight, all these A-list celebrities. You know, like, what was that like? I mean, like you said, you got the, the, the fame and the money at a young age. And now you're like with all these guys who are like icons. Right. So how did that affect you? I guess it affected me in a way where it really got to my head. Mm-hmm. Um, to almost like sense of like invincibility. And I just like sometimes, you know, like I just wish I could go back and know what I know now because now I'm clean and so I didn't 
you know, like and when you're clean and sober, you make better decisions. Like I, I, I can't even imagine the ass I made out of myself when I used to go out and stuff and I was all like that. Mm-hmm. And the opportunities that I blew and just all the, you know, the, the things that I squandered just because of bad decisions. But being around guys like that, it's just when you're in the state of mind that I was in. And, you know, and at that point in my life, I hadn't reached the point of you know, clarity. Mm-hmm. I didn't really appreciate being around people like that, which I should have, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And now I wish I could go back and be around those people, yeah. you know. Yeah. What kind of advice would you give someone, you know, trying to pursue an acting career? From a young age. From a young age. Yeah. I would say just be careful, be careful, you know, just be careful with the parties, you know, go to the screening, but maybe don't go to the party. I know that's hard to do, especially when you're young, yeah. but that's where you get in trouble. Yeah. I know I always did, yeah. you know, and, and you know what it is when you're young and you're getting these opportunities, you think they're always going to, they're always going to come yeah. just like, it's like you're got right. But that's not the case. They don't always come. And that's why when you have these opportunities, you have to make the most of them while they are there because they may not be there in two years so you need to make it what money as you can you know do as much great work as you can and then listen and and i and and i would also say don't don't you know don't make the, don't let this be your only career mm-hmm. don't let this be your your only career because it's like feast or famine you know it's this 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 industry is exactly what Frank Sinatra meant when he wrote that song, That's Life. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like he was, he was you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. that's what Hollywood's about. You're here, then you're here, then you're here, then, you know? Yeah. So. And, um, you know, I would, you'd say around that time, right after that, when, when did the drug use start becoming like a big, big problem for you? Like, when did it really start to pick up? Because I also, I remember in one of your interviews I had watched, I had seen that you missed an interview I missed an audition for Saving Private Ryan, which that, you know, it's one of the greatest movies of all time. If And, you know, that could have been another notch on your belt and, and, and something to add to your resume of, you know, great work that you've done. But how did it affect you and things like that? Well, that, you know, it was, I mean, Steven Spielberg was in New York mm-hmm. and he's an, he's an L.A. based director. Right. So like when he's in New York, he's probably only there for a few days reading actors and then he's going to go back to L.A. <clears throat> you know what I mean? So I had my shot, but the audition was on Friday. I went out Thursday night. I started drinking and partying and snorting cocaine. And then the next morning, my audition was at like 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning. And meanwhile, I'm just getting home at like 7, 8. And I'm still going. And I tried to sober up by them, but I, I my jaw was swinging and I was just like too wired out. So... I missed the audition more because I would rather miss it than Steven Spielberg see me like that. Because yeah. I think that would have done more damage than not going at all, mm-hmm. you know? Was there ever a point when you were that young where you were like, you know what? Like, obviously, you, you felt almost like embarrassing in front of Steven Spielberg like that. Did you ever feel like, all right, maybe I should slow down on this? Or like, how, how did it progress to the point to where it got? I don't know. It's like it fools your mind to make you think like you're gonna stop, like don't worry about it, just do it a little bit more, you'll be okay. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You think you're gonna get out of control because it tells you that you're not. Yeah. But then you are at it, oh, and you're like, damn, but I thought I, I thought it told me that I wasn't, but you're like, look at your life and everything's like upside down mm-hmm. and it's all because of that. Yeah. <laughs> Once you eliminate that from the equation, everything's fine, yeah. you know? Yeah. So what, what were these parties like? 
was it like something you see in a movie or is it like a house party or so young where you're getting into clubs yeah, and were they were they were people pressing you to do drugs and do things like that or is that something you just kind of no you do it on your own it's yeah. there yeah you got beautiful women there and you're this young kid in these like hit movies and you got these like, you know, I'm at like 17, I'm just like 16, 17, 18, I'm young. And then you got these girls that are like 25. They spot this young kid. They know who I was. <laughs> and now they're starting to blow. So now you're in the bathroom with girls and you get naked with them and you snort and blow with them. It's like, you know, yeah, nah, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it's about. Yeah. You know, you go into like, because LA last calls at 1.30. Yeah. So by two o'clock, 2, 2.30, everyone's at, like, some party in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah, yeah. There's always a party because of this last call. So, And then that's where the real fun is. Yeah, yeah. That's when you got mounds of cocaine. You got some huge mansion <clears throat> in the hills. Yeah. And it's, like, you know, so many rooms. And every room, there's, like, a different group of people. But everybody's partying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so the whole place is full of cocaine. <laughs> you go in this room, you got these two girls blowing this one guy. You go in this room, these people are... In a friggin' bath, you know, like in a hot tub, you know, all naked, and they're snorting blow. Yeah. You go in this room, they're playing cards, they're snorting blow. You got this room, these girls are half naked dancing, and these guys are half naked dancing, and they're snorting blow. You go outside, there's the funny. pool, half of the places, you know, so it's like, come on. You know what I mean? It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. I think I, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I need to be an actor. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. why. <laughs> So was there, I mean, you don't have to like name drop or anything, but was there anyone who, who was just like, you were always there with them? Was there like a, like another guy you're always with? I got one of these things, like like a more popular guy. Or was it more like you brought your boys along with you to go to these, these events and things like that? I didn't really hang out with people in the business. Mm -hmm. You know, you know what it is? I just didn't want people in my business. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we work together, but it's like, you know, like I don't want to go out with you really, yeah. you know? Yeah. Because it's like, listen, you know, this is what I do. That's that's that side. But now this is like my personal life. Yeah. And it's like I got friends and you know what I mean? I don't want to have to edit things that I do. Mm -hmm. This is what I am. I'm yeah. a real guy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And Hollywood, is, it's beautiful. It's great. I love it because that's what I am. I'm an actor mm -hmm. and I can showcase my talent, do different things and challenge myself to play different characters. And that whole part of it, I love very much. But obviously we know it's a business. Yeah. It's a business. Yeah. You have to play it this you know, certain way. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, people, there's all the do's and don'ts and all the, all the bullshit. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? All the uh, conforming to the Hollywood ideals and what we're supposed to be. And that's cool. I, I, you know, I respect that because, I, you know, like, listen, these opportunities are golden. And, you know, listen, if that's the price, I don't mind. But mm -hmm. now this is my own personal time. I don't want to still have to be that, uh, you know, a different person. Because yeah. let's face it, you know everyone's one way in front of this person and everyone's one way in front of these people. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's just life. That's everybody has different sides. Absolutely. So it's like, as far as anybody in the business, I never hung out with anybody. I mean, me and Wahlberg hung out like when we did Renaissance Man real, but I was so young and I was for like a short period of time, mm -hmm. you know, and he's, he's doing great and he's, you know, unbelievable. Yeah. What he's, a, what he's a un, un, unbelievable. Yeah. Gotcha. So, right, so going off of that now, um, when a little bit later on you you were in the Sopranos, which obviously um, you know we, we had talked about a little bit before um, getting you on this episode. Um, I also read a story about James Gandolfini uh, confronting you about you being high recording one of the episodes. Um, can you kind of take me through that and maybe what James Gandolfini said to you? No, he didn't really confront me and accuse me of me being high, but he knew what I was up to, so he did it in a different way. Mm -hmm. 
more like, you know, the opportunities that we're getting and to do this kind of stuff is something that, you know, people dream of. Yeah. And, you know, when you have the, just, what, just like what I was saying, and these opportunities, you really got to do the right thing by them. Mm -hmm. It's basically what he said. Yeah. So, and I knew Gandolfini, too, from Crimson Tide. Right. I knew Gandolfini before pretty much, like a lot of people knew who he was. Yeah. And, you know, he was a good actor. I always knew he had something about him. And Tony Scott cast him in, in Crimson Tide. Yeah. And Tony Scott cast them in true romance. Mm -hmm. Did your parents yeah. and your brother like notice this downfall? Like each year you're just getting worse and worse. And worse? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah, 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 of course. Because I hurt my head. I don't know if you could see a scar back here. Yeah, yeah. But I, that's what the narcotic, that's when the narcotic pain medication started. That was in like 2000. Because I hurt my head really bad. I got drunk and coked up one night. So I hurt my, I jumped out of a car, jumped out, jumped out of a moving car, destroyed my head. And I got old, you know, like I hurt myself bad. So I, that's when I started the narcotic pain medication stuff. Yeah. Had no clue what they would do because I didn't know that they basically were the same ingredient as heroin. It was an opiate. Yeah. And uh, I was taking those for the pain and then I started liking them. I was like, wow, these things are great. Yeah. And then I was taking more and more. And then I just loved them. And then I was like looking for them. And then like started in like 2000, I became an addict of those. Yeah. So that went on until 2005. And then I became a heroin addict and a crack addict. I, can I, we got to backtrack a little bit there because you said you jumped out of a moving car. I'm just curious as to that story as well. Well, I was paranoid on the coke. I was, you know, I was real paranoid. I thought the guys in the car were going to kill me. Were they random guys you were with you didn't know or? No, they were my friends. friends. <clears throat> but when you do too much cocaine, that's what you call cocaine psychosis. And uh, I started getting delusional behavior, paranoid behavior. Started hearing voices, and it's really, really, really drives you. Look that up, cocaine psychosis. Yeah, I definitely. And everything know. I'm playing, yeah, that's that's what happened. And I started hearing them like they were whispering in the car, like let's get them and stuff like that. And I was just like bugging out. I had been partying all day. Um, and I remember it was October of 2000. And then I remember, I just said, let me get out of this car. I jumped out and I, I got hurt pretty bad, wow. you know? So another story I heard, or I'd seen in an interview that you'd done previously was um, about the AC story. When you went down there and you were looking for a fix and you actually ended up wa like wandering into like a, a random crack house down there. Yeah. Well, I remember I went in because it's like once you start drinking and then it's like I wanted a party. So like I drifted off from my friends and I like started walking the streets by myself. Yeah. And I saw this one I just seen the people standing in front of it and I saw it like, like there was this like boarded up windows and I seen people coming in and out. So I was like, all right, that's a crack house. You know, this is where I'm going to get it. So I was like, you know, I, I talked to a guy, said, yo, you know, I get some bass. And he was like, yeah, come inside. So then I went inside. So now this is like, you know, like really the depths of hell. You know what I mean? You're like in this place, like it's, some of it's dark. You can't even see all the people in there. You don't know who's coming at you. But it's like all because that drug is so powerful, you put yourself in these situations. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's so, so nuts, yeah. you know? Then this one guy came at me with a hammer, and I remember, like, he was coming. Now, he wasn't, like, it wasn't, he was trying to make it subtle, but he was coming towards me. Mm -hmm. So, like, I like I stood close to the wall, and, like, I walked out, and I got out of there. Next thing you know, a cop was, and he recognized me. He didn't say anything. You know, like about what the hell are you doing here? He goes, hey, you know, he knew who I was. He goes, anybody in there giving you trouble? He goes, he goes, he goes, just let me know. 
He goes, we love running up in these places and destroying them. I was like, no, no, no trouble. I said, no, no, no trouble, and I just kept walking. At one point, how, how bad did the drug problem get? Like, at its peak, like, how, how much were you spending on drugs? How often were you doing it? How often were you, like, take us, take us through, like, a uh, uh, I mean, you know, like, 2005, before I got arrested, I was spending, like, $500 a day on drugs. I was smoking, like, 300 a day on crack, and then another 200 on, like, heroin. Just to be able to be straight, because I was very addicted. And I never shot it. I used to snort it. And that's why it costed so money. Because, like, if you shoot two bags, it's as powerful as snorting, like, eight, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> so, I so I never really had to shoot it. Yeah. A lot of times you get these people that can't afford, you know, $200 a day. Yeah. So they'll, you know, shoot, you know, one or two bags, and they'll, you know, and they'll be okay, yeah. you know? Is your brother ever involved in all the shit you were doing? No, absolutely not. No, no, he had pretty much his own set of friends. My brother was more, like, into, like, my brother liked to go hunting and stuff like that. Yeah. He was more like a blue collar guy. Mm -hmm. You know, he's more like my dad, hard working guy, blue yeah. collar, liked to go hunting and he's got his family. Yeah. Don't want no trouble. He works, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's it. Pays his bills, yeah. has a couple of beers on the weekend, and that's it. Yeah. You know? And like like you said, a couple years prior, your family obviously started to notice. Like, what was some of the things that they were trying to like stress to you, try to say to you to, to help you? Because, you know, obviously your problem at that point was, was really bad. Did it have a strain on your relationship with them at any point? Oh, of course, but then my parents, they, you know, I mean, they, they always supported me. They, you know, it's, mm -hmm. you know, no matter what, no matter how bad it got, my parents were always there for me. My father, you know, rest in peace. Yeah. So kind of take us now through um, about that night. Fast forward six, five, six months, you know, it's December. Um, you ended up breaking up with your ex-girlfriend, hanging around with her father. Um, kind of take us through the whole dynamic of how all, the, all that went down, how it all leading up to that day. Well, she, you know, she didn't want to be with me anymore. She was studying to go to medical school. So like every time I went there, she would like call the cops. So I befriended her dad as an excuse and say, I'm not here to see you. I'm here to see your dad. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you know, prison a few times. He was like, you know, he inherited a lot of money. So he was like at the bar every day, drinking scotch and, you know, snorting heroin. And, you know, he was a bad guy, but we became friends. And then, you know, we used to hang out and go get high and drink and stuff like that. And then on that night, that was the first time I ever hung out with him after hours. We wanted to just go hang out. So we went to a strip club in the Bronx. And then we decided we wanted to get more dope, but nobody had any. I knew, you know, I knew of this guy who was my friend and he had pills in his house. So we went there. Yeah, I broke the window and stuff like that. But it wasn't really burglary. Mm -hmm. I was so high that I was trying to get the guy's attention. And, you know, we had all of that. It, I should have beaten that case. But, you know, I'm glad I didn't because then I would have never gotten straight. Yeah. But, uh... You know, um, yeah, so I broke the window, you know, made some noise. The guy came outside. He said, don't move. I moved and he shot me. And then, you know, and then I got out of there quick. Mm -hmm. And then Steven was between the houses and then them two started shooting at each other. I didn't see when Steven shot him because I was already like, like covered in blood walking down the street. Yeah. I heard it. And then I saw mom and Steven came to where I was and then the cops showed up. And, you know, I didn't see the other guy get shot. We didn't know he was a cop. Yeah. And then, you know, because, uh, and there's proof that I didn't know he was a cop. Because when the cop down the street, they said, who the hell shot you? And I said, the bald guy down the street. Mm -hmm. So if it was a cop, when you get bleak and blood, you're not going to think about what you're saying. You're just going to act. You know what I mean? Yeah. Did you know Stephen was gay? No, I did not. I mean, that's, listen, 
The DA could not produce one witness. I was almost 30 years old at that point. Yeah. She could not produce one witness that said, yeah, we hung out with Lilo all the time. He always, he, we always had guns. He used to carry guns too. No, because th that was not my thing. It was winter time. I was, you don't, ju you don't do something for 30 years. There's no violence on my record. There was mm -hmm. nothing. You don't go 30 years without any violence and then decide one night, all right, Steve, let's go and kill a cop. Yeah. doesn't happen like that. Yeah. There, would have been an, there, would have, there would have been a pattern already established at that point Absolutely. that this guy's violent. Maybe say he would have, would have, you know, maybe hit a kid in the head with a chair at school, okay? And then, you know, maybe in high school at a house party, he stabs a kid. Then you can say, wow, you know what? The kid's violent. He's already had two incidents. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But now, in my case, there's no... There's no history of violence whatsoever. And then it's like, this happens. No, I was a drug addict. And, you know, I didn't shoot the cop. I got shot myself. And what they made me out to be in the press, it's absolutely disgusting. Yeah. And they still do. Meanwhile, like, you know, I've given so much back. I try to help other addicts and stuff like that. But these people still want to come at me disrespectfully, which is dis disgusting. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Because I should say, listen, this guy learned his lesson. You know what I mean? He got off drugs. He's using what he's been given a second chance to help other people, mm -hmm. to use that experience and to, to, to help others not go down that path. Yeah, and I don't understand why people, you know, like, and I've been humble since I came home five years, yeah. but it doesn't work because the more you're respectful, the more they get disrespectful. Mm -hmm. And you know, the bottom line is, and you know, the bottom line is if I was there that night doing exactly what I was doing with exactly what I had on my person, Without the other guy with me, that cop would still be alive. Yeah. So there's no way you can say, yeah, you killed a cop. If you take that guy out of the equation, mm -hmm. and I was doing everything exactly the same, breaking the window and everything else that I was doing without him there, that cop would still be alive. Yeah. That's as simple as you could put it. Mm -hmm. that's, as, that's a felony murder right there. Yeah. If the guy would have died and Steven wasn't there, then you could say, you know what, Lilo, it was your fault. Mm -hmm. Say we're doing a burglary or something and we cause a fire in the house by accident when we break the window and then the, the stove was on and now we burn the house down. That's different yeah. because Stephen didn't need to be there. That guy still would have died because of the burglary. Yeah. You understand? Mm -hmm. But you take Stephen out of this, exactly what I was doing, everything, the guy's still alive. Right. But that's not, you know... You know, first of all, a lot of times when I tell people, oh, yeah, you know, I, oh, you were shot? I didn't know you were shot. Of course she didn't know I was shot because that's not what they want the people to know. Yeah. They don't want people to know that this guy was shot. He was unarmed. Yeah. He was unarmed. And he was shot two and a half times, two direct hits and, and a graze mm -hmm. by this police officer who shot him first. Yeah. Shot him first. And he was unarmed. Why don't we tell that story? Mm -hmm. Why don't we tell how that set off the chain of events? Because if you don't shoot first... The other guy's not going to shoot. None of this is going to happen. Okay. You, you were in your house. You know, like, listen, I'm not saying, listen, the guy was a hero. He came out, this and that. But it's like, you know, it's six, six seven years later. And, you know, it's like still these people want to make me out to be like, I'm like, you know, like the son of Sam. Yeah, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and it's like, come on, enough, you know, yeah. really enough. I'm like, want to get on with my life now. Yeah. I think I deserve it, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it is what it is, you know? I think I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. I, I also think people just 
they'll do anything to grab a headline because of, you have the name and, and your, your background and, and you know they'll do anything to grab a headline for it and obviously grab attention because they want to make money or do whatever, whatever the fuck they want to do but there's no telling, I mean, the guy you were with, what would have happened, Like, because regardless, he did have the gun, but I agree that, that to throw dirt on your name for for what happened is uh, um, definitely unfair. But um, let, let's backtrack a little, because you mentioned that you knew the guy whose window that you were breaking into, uh, his name was uh, Kenny Scavetti, if I have that correct? Scavotti. He lived next door, he lived next door to the kid who played the young me in the Bronx Tale. Okay. His sister was my first love. Kenny was the next door neighbor. Mm-hmm. He was a Vietnam veteran. He was like Rain Man. He was literally, hi, how you doing? <laughs> he was like really like, and he, he took a lot of drugs because he was, you know, PTSD. Yeah. You know, he got addicted to heroin and the war. He died of AIDS, that guy. Yeah. You know, he died, you know, he was a heroin addict. He was a, he had Valium. He had, and he was a cool dude when we were kids. Yeah. He always used to look out for us and all this other kind of stuff. And I knew he would have drugs in his house. And I hadn't seen this guy in a while, but I was desperate because we couldn't get heroin. So I knew he had Tylenol or codeine. So yeah, I broke his window. But my friend Charlie Magno, rest in peace, yeah. he testified that I used to climb through his and his aunt's window too in the middle of the night. Yeah. And, you know, my lawyer for us, the director of examination, said, well, you know, you were okay with Lilo climbing through your window? Was, was he going to rob you? He was no, Lilo didn't climb through our window to rob us. He just wanted to get our attention. He knew I had back surgery and he used to come to my house and used to beg me for OxyContin and I wouldn't give it to him. Yeah. And she said, and he would just go away, the DA. And, uh, you know, he goes, no, he goes, I used to give him, I used to give him over the counter sleep medication called sleep three. She said, and he said, and I would tell him there was Xanax. And he said, yeah, he would believe you. He goes, yeah, he would believe me. And he would just go, <laughs> you know? That's, you know, when you're on drugs like that, yeah, I'll climb through somebody's window. It doesn't automatically mean I'm going to rob you. I'm just going to wake you up and say, yo, it was a fucking bills. Yeah. yeah. So you know? what was your relationship like with Steven? I mean, there was really no relationship. You know what I mean? It was it was all contingent on the drug and alcohol use. Without that, there's no relationship. Or the girls, his daughter. Have, have, you, spoke you, to, have you spoke to Steven since everything went down? Yes, yeah, since it went down, yeah, but I haven't spoken to him in a few years. Yeah. What do you even say? Are you like a, yeah, disappointed yeah. with him, or you, do you feel some type of way towards him? Does he feel any type of way towards you? I mean, what is the dynamic between you guys? No, listen. I mean, listen. I don't feel a certain type of way. I brought that guy to that house. Yeah, yeah. He was my ex-girlfriend's father. He was already a two-time con. He didn't convict. He didn't want to get in trouble. Yeah. I brought him to this house. Mm-hmm. I brought him to this house, and this all happened. So, if anything, he should be upset with me. You know what I mean? Yeah, he bought a gun out. He didn't tell me. But, you know, hey. But, um, no, I'm not upset. I mean, listen, if somebody shoots you and you have a gun, what are you going to do? You're going to shoot him back, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Right, so that's what he did. You know, I mean, because they're trying to sell the, the, the media and the cops and everything. They're trying to sell that this cop was, you know, he sh- they're trying to sell that Steven shot him first, right? Mm-hmm. With a 357 Magnum, with a hollow tip bullet, it hits him and it pierces his heart, okay? And then they're trying to say that this cop, after getting shot like that, okay, from the ground, because he was hit so hard from that, that 357 bullet, from the ground, mortally wounded, he shot two targets. He shot two targets, nine shots, mm-hmm. and he hit every one. Do you think that's possible? 
And there is another, the guy, the aggressor, the guy that you're saying shot you first. He shoots you first. So do you think if he sees you, sees you gathering yourself, ready to pull up the gun, he shot you already. Now you're trying to shoot him. You think he's going to wait for all this and just sit there and not shoot you back? No, it's impossible. Yeah. It's impossible. The cops shot all those things first. Mm-hmm. He hits the, Steve got shot, Steve got shot like six, seven times. Yeah. You're gonna shoot that seven times after you're dead on the floor, mortally wounded with a three a hollow tip bullet that came out of your back the size of you know what I mean? It's not happening. It's not happening. You know, and it's still to this day like people, you know, it's like listen. You mentioned you know you you got shot uh, two and a half times. Um, some of your injuries were you had, I think your spleen got hit. You had to get a part of your colon removed, uh, and you had a collapsed lung. <laughs> You were, so you were pretty banged up. How how long did it take you for the recovery process, and how soon after you got how soon after, or you know, did you go into prison after that? Like, what was the timeline like with you going going away? Oh no, I mean, I was dude. They brought me right to jail. I got the surgery. And I was I was at a Bronx. I was at Jacoby in the Bronx, mm-hmm. and then they brought us to Bellevue on the East River, the prison ward, mm-hmm. and then from there we went to Rikers Island, like within the span of a week. Wow. Time it was right down to business. You're better off blowing up a whole house full of nuns. You'd get in less trouble if you blew up a whole house full of nuns than you did if you killed a cop. Yeah. They don't. They, the worst thing you can do in the in New York. That's the worst thing you can do. Yeah. Did you ever have a chance to go face to face and speak with that officer's family, or um, you know, if you haven't, is there something that you would like to say to them, or that you haven't got a chance? You know, I just, I would like to say to the sister, I wish you would take the time to get to know me. And, uh, you know, you would see that, you know, but the cops are in her ear. And, uh, you know, she talks about, like, you know, how religious she is. And she's a woman of faith. And, uh, you know, she's a Catholic and this and that. But, you know, it's like, you know the facts in the case. You know I wasn't the one that shot your brother. Mm-hmm. You also know that I've been home for over six years. I never got in trouble once in parole. I didn't lose any good time while I was away. I worked for a health company. I've helped so many people get off drugs and, you know, put so much into that. And if you're a Catholic like you say you are, because Roman, you know, the Roman Catholic faith, the very foundation of that faith is the forgiveness of sins. That's the reason. That's what the cross symbolizes. God dying on a cross for our sins. So you're talking about how you're this Catholic and this and that, but you're not a righteous. Listen, if that's what it was about, and especially since you've seen me turn my life around and give back, right there, that's more than enough for you to forgive me. And the fact that you still want to go with this tells me you're a little full of shit, and I think you like the attention that the cops give you, and they make you feel so powerful and mighty. Listen, I didn't kill your brother. I've apologized, and you still haven't come around, so I'll feel the way you want to feel, but I'm going to get on with my life because that's all I can do at this point, you know? So yeah, now I going into Rikers Island. You show up there, um, you know you were well underway because you were obviously using drugs a lot. Um, take me when they first brought you into Rikers Island because Rikers Island is like obviously known. It's like holy shit, this is this is Rikers Island. This is it. this is this is it. So tell tell me what your mindset is going in and kind of like finally entering the prison and, and being there. Well, Rikers Island is jail. You know what I mean? Prisons when we went upstate. Mm-hmm. But Rikers Island is worse. Yeah. There's so much corruption from the guards. You're in like New York City, so there's so much, there's so, so, 
there's so much drugs. There are so many drugs in Rikers Island, you know, because it's right there. It's right there. Like the further up north you go, it's harder to smuggle. The further away you go, the harder to smuggle because it's more distance that you got to smuggle this shit. Yeah. But you're, you're in fucking New York City. Like, you know, you got, you know, the five boroughs. You got people coming from Brooklyn, from Queens. They are bringing in drugs. It just, just comes in all the times. And the CEOs are bringing it in too. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I was getting high when I was there. The whole 2006, November 12th, I overdosed it myself. I was getting high at church. I was getting morphine at church. And then I had another guy who used to sell me hair. He was a gang member of blood. He used to put the, the glassine envelopes in the uh, little ramen noodles. And, and uh, you know, we used to do it like that. My mom used to send money orders to, like, his girlfriend or whatever. But my mom didn't know it was for drugs. She thought it was for cigarettes. I told my mom because she saw on the news that cigarettes cost $100 a pack. So she, she believed me when I told her, listen, it's for cigarettes. So then I just overdosed on my in my cell, and then it was like a big investigation. You know, New York City detectives they they closed off, they t- yellow taped my my cell off like it was a crime scene. It was like big news on the news. It was a big yeah. deal. Yeah. Uh, it was it was a big deal, and you know, I still didn't want to stop. Yeah. I still didn't want to stop, and then November 18, two thousand six was the last time I got high. Yeah. Stored a four bags of dope, and that was it. And then I went away to the box. I went to you know punitive segregation for eighty days because then they they tested my urine on Monday. They found I was dirty, and then I got eighty days in the box because of that. But then when I came out, I decided I didn't want to get high anymore. November eighteenth, the last time I did it, and then two thousand seven consisted of you know putting weight back on, working out. I was in the law library every night, and I used to you know study my case and the charges I was up against. And then event in 2008, in November, we went to trial. Stephen had went to trial already. He uh, lost, and he was convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to natural life without the possibility of parole. Mm-hmm. So he got, like, he's never coming home. Yeah. And then and then I went to trial right around Thanksgiving of 2008. It lasted about a month. I was not guilty of all charges except uh, an attempted burglary in the first degree. Mm-hmm with serious physical injury to a non-participant. Um, so then I was sentenced to 10 years as a result of that conviction. I ended up doing eight. Um, I came home. And ever since then, I you know, it was tough in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had no money. I had really any, nothing. But I never got discovered. A lot of doors slammed in my face. And I just kept plugging away. And thank God things are a lot better now. Mm-hmm. I'm still sober, still helping others. And, uh, you know, it's really, you know, great to have been given this, this second chance. And, you know, and I realize more every day that not everyone is given a second chance. And I appreciate it so much, yeah. you know. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, like we're living in a really, uh, really sad time right now with this uh, coronavirus pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my heart and prayers go out to, you know, all those affected by this. And uh, let's, you know, let's stand, let's stand strong together. Let's unite and, you know, do everything we're told, wash your hands, stay, stay at home. So, um, agree, agree on all that. Um, but going back a little bit, you, would you say going in the box for those 80 days kind of helped you? Cause you, you, so probably you sobered up when you were in there, right? And you had no contact with anybody. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't talk to anybody. No, you can talk to people. There's cells right next to you. You can talk. You got attorney visits and. No, yeah. I mean, listen. If you still want to get high, you can still get high. It's it's everywhere, especially in the box. 
the box is filled with, I mean, the box is filled with the, you know, it's all gang members. It's all bloods. Yeah. Some of the CEOs were bloods. Yeah. Say, you say it was, it was jail. Like, like it, so it's as bad as they say Rikers Island is. It, it is that, it's that bad. Yeah, it's even worse than that. It's worse than what they say. Yeah. It's so bad because, like I said, the police corruption. Yeah. Because of the police corruption. But you know what it is? I'll tell you what it is. You got these COs in Rikers Island. They're bloods and crips themselves. Mm -hmm. You got COs that are gang members. Maybe through their uncle or whatever. Hey, I got you. Hey, come take the test for corrections. Maybe we'll get you on. Now he's on. Mm -hmm. He's still a gang member. He's some 22-year-old kid, lived in the hood, and now he's a corrections officer, but he's a gang member, and he's making over 100000 a year mm-hmm. because he's working overtime. That's what they make in the city. Yeah, yeah. You have some 20 kids making 100, clearing 125000 a year with overtime. Yeah. That's not bad money. Yeah. Okay, so now, okay, so yeah, this works. So now say this kid, this is his block. He's the steady here. He's the steady officer. He's, he's a crip. And now he's got this house. It's all Crips. Okay? So say two of the Crips that are in this house, in this block, they know him. Their families know each other from the street. They're all from Brooklyn. Okay? So now, this kid, the CEO, is going to his family. His family's giving him stuff to bring to him. Mm-hmm. What do you think he's bringing them? You know what he's bringing them. He's bringing them drugs. Mm-hmm. He's bringing them razor blades. He's bringing them heroin. He's bringing them all of that. Mm-hmm. That's why it's bad. Yeah. Because it comes in that easily. Yeah. How can you stop? How can you stop that? Yeah. You know what you would have? You would have to search every single CO every single morning before they go to work. Yeah. You think they always want to be subjected to that bullshit? Would you want to get searched? If, I'm the CO. I'm not an inmate. Yeah. Get away. I don't want to get searched today. Imagine that. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, you're obviously still using for a little bit when you were in there, but... Did yeah, you take us through a day? Yeah, yeah, did you stay to yourself? Were you? Did you get friendly with anyone in there? Like, or was it like I'm staying no, the no, fuck away from these guys? I, I became friends with people. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know what it is with that. What it is? Everything shifts around so much. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You got one guy, he's here, and then he goes to court, and then you never see him again. Mm-hmm. And then another guy comes in, and he can change the whole complexion and the whole chem. You know what I mean? Yeah. The whole dynamic of that happens. Yeah. You get one guy who's loud mouth screaming and yelling. He changes everything. Yeah. Because then he wants to go against the, the COs, and then he wants to give them a hard time. So now they want to fuck with him, and they're going to fuck with all of us. You know what I mean? So we get on him because he's the one causing the trouble. Yeah. So it's like, but you got, you know, but there was a lot of good guys, though. There was a lot of good guys. Did, and did you? Make- then, you know, I really go to yard in the morning. I never miss yard. I want to work out. Yeah. I used to drink my coffee at the yard. I used to come back. And pretty much, you know, we relax for a few hours, maybe take a little nap after the yard because yard was early. Yard was like 6.30 in the morning, freezing out some days. But you want to come in and get that workout in. Mm-hmm. So then when I come back, I take a shower and I sleep, you know. And then the lunch comes, we eat lunch, we hang out for a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Then the new shift comes in, you get your mail, you get the, you get the, and then the new shift, then you get dinner. Mm-hmm. You know, once dinner comes, then once dinner comes, you got all the TV shows on that we watch. And then, you know, you got watching TV, who's cooking. Maybe we can make some rice together, you know, eating all kinds of stuff. And then after you were at Rikers, you went to another prison and I, I read online that you were actually were friendly or you, you hung around with Plaxico Bears. Is that how true is that? Yeah, well, we were in the same house, so yeah. you can avoid them. But we used to throw the football around a little bit. Were there any other like notable names like Plaxico? Yeah, Jarrell. Really? Oh, really? That's awesome. 
Uh. <laughs> Jeffrey Atkins. He was there in like... Uh, Jeffrey Atkins was there in 2011. He was there in June. He was there for a couple months with us. Buying Rikers Island. <laughs> Anyone? Rikers Island. No, nah, not, not not like that. So any of those guys that you just named that you were in there with, like Plaxico, Jeffrey Atkins, talked to them since you guys have gone out or, or anything like that? Have you came in contact with them or no? I saw Plaxico a few times. He's a good guy. Yeah. Did you say like going through it with other high-profile guys kind of helped make it a little bit easier for you? Oh, um, yeah, because I was going to school. I earned my college. You know, I got my, earned my associates yeah. that I paid for out of my own pocket. That's awesome. So, like, you had some of these, like, guys that I was upstate with. Like, one guy was the chief of, you know, the Rock, the, the Rochester police. Mm -hmm. He was in trouble for covering something up. But he was a great with math. He used to help me. I was there with Hank Morris. Hank Morris was the mastermind. When they when they stole, you know, they robbed the state pension fund for $28 million with the state controller, yeah. Alan Hevesy. Yeah. I was with the guy, Hank Morris, another really a genius. So yeah, it made it easier. I would rather have been around guys like that because yeah. these guys were smart and you learn. You learn yeah. things. Imagine yeah. sitting all those years and don't learn anything. Yeah. Like, what a waste. Yeah. What a waste. You know, at least I can say I went to school and yeah. I learned a lot because business management encompasses a lot. Yeah. So much politics, accounting, psychology. Sure. There was so much I learned. For sure. You know? Yeah. So. You get out. Take me through your reaction, what it felt like to get out of there. Who, who came and picked you up? Who, like, what was the next, what was the first thing you did when you got out of there? Well, it was my ex-girlfriend, my father, and my cousin, TJ. Mm -hmm. um, I remember I wanted to get a pack of gum. So on the back going downstate, we uh, stopped at a gas station. I got a protein bar. I got some gum. And I remember it was New Year's Eve. I remember when I went home, all my friend, you know, my family was there. Everybody was news reporters in front of the house. And I see everybody with, like, cell phones. And I've never, you know, like, when I went away in 05, the Blackberry didn't even come out yet, you know? So. Yeah. What would you say is one of the craziest memories you know, I'm backtracking a little bit. Craziest memories in jail or in prison? In jail? A crazy memory, like a good memory? Good, bad, just something that you'll always like remember. Well, a good memory in jail was when I found out I was going to get the time cut, yeah. and that I was eligible for it because of my because uh, of the degree. Mm -hmm. But I did get time shaved off my sentence. That was probably the happiest day. I remember I got jumped when I was in the box. Yeah, by some yeah. bloods while I was handcuffed. I, you know, I got it pretty bad that day. It was bad. You know, it was probably one of the worst. What was the reason for um, that? Why did they jump you? Well, just over some words when we were in the cages outside in the yard. Yeah. And when they let us out, we were all on these chains shackled by our feet and handcuffed behind our back. But I guess a couple of the guys slipped the cuffs or the CEOs may have, like, not put them on tight. And then yeah. next thing you know, I was getting, getting punched in my head. And I couldn't even cap, cover myself because, like I said, my hands were cuffed behind my back. Yeah, yeah. So I tried to bury my head in my chest. But, I, you know, they got me. Yeah. Or was there any guys who kind of stayed in touch with you throughout this or maybe words of encouragement or even after maybe reached out and, and saw how you're doing? Yeah, not really. Not really. No. A lot of people went the other way, mm -hmm. you know? Do you have any ill will or Ill, Ill feelings towards those people for, for feeling that way? Yeah, of course I do. Of course I do. It's, you know, of course, yeah. Because a lot of them, you know, like are in like, you know, shows like The Sopranos and they walk around like they're real tough guys in real life. And they're not. Because if you were, when I got in trouble, you would have stood behind me because that's what a real tough guy does. A real tough guy doesn't give a fuck. It's a cop. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. A real tough guy said, they'll shake your hand. Say, fuck him. He's a cop. Yeah. So good, you know what I mean? So that's where a real tough guy thinks that these guys want to walk around. 
person thinks like these guys are like tough. Like they're not tough. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah, I do have no feelings and you know and but it is what it is, you know, I can't I feel a certain way, but it's not gonna affect me. Right. Because I'm still gonna stay over and I'm still gonna fucking keep right. doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And then I can look back and at some of these people and say, you know what, you shouldn't stay my friend because I'm you know what I mean? But is, Listen, do what you got to I don't really give a fuck, you know? No. 100%. Is there is there maybe one relationship that sticks out to you the most that you're kind of upset that maybe this guy didn't reach out? Like, I, I, I'd read that Chaz Palmieri um, had on record said he wanted nothing to do with you because you, you blew it. You blew your opportunity. Do you have any Ill, Ill feelings towards him or is there any other notable people that maybe you kind of regret or not regret, but you feel like I wish, I, I'm disappointed that they didn't reach out? Okay, well, here... No, but Chaz sticks out, you know, he's got to be like one of the biggest frauds and phonies in the world. He didn't even write the book, some guy Frank Renzulli did, and Chaz stole his story. Why don't you go look that up? Frank Renzulli, he wrote the fucking Bronx tale. No one even really knows who Chaz is from the Bronx. Like he talks about, he witnessed the murder and all this. He's, I'm more of a Bronx tale than him, and I'm not even from the Bronx. First of all, nobody respects him okay i know real guys like real like guys like sunny from that neighborhood that do not respect him and as far as i and this is that this you you can ask anybody you want Chaz went into one of those restaurants someone who's and because of what he said about me they threw him out of the restaurant you should interview Chaz and say hey did you get thrown out of a restaurant called rigoletto's because you talk bad Chaz is a punk Okay, he he shut his fucking no, mouth. No, no. Okay, because listen, he's saying he's saying the Bronx tale was his story, right? Yeah. So you're saying that you're the kid, you're me, you witnessed the murder, right? And that you didn't tell. You're a stand-up kid and you didn't tell. Okay, so what's the difference between what happened to me and what happened to that? I didn't tell either. Why? Because it was a cop. Yeah. So now all of a sudden you're you're a fucking you know you're 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 a city you're you're a fucking law-abiding citizen. Yeah. Back in the day, you were guys get killed and this and that and you didn't cooperate but now it's the cop it's a cop but now all of a sudden it's not okay anymore yeah. i don't understand so what is it are you that way or are you that way yeah you should just shut the fuck up you yeah. really should especially because you know my parents you know my mother and father and you yeah. know they're decent people they're more decent than your family your family's not even real italians we're real italians we were born in italy you're an Italian-American, and so is your parents. And you know my parents were good people. Yeah. And the fact that you went out of your way to say shit like that when my father was nothing but nice to you and your whole family is disrespectful. Yeah. Like me calling you a douchebag. Yeah. And your father's got to hear And why would Lilo say that about Chaz? I thought they were friends. Yeah. Right or wrong? No, yeah. And he's got kids still. Like, you shouldn't do that. I got hooked on drugs. It's not like I was just some bad kid because I was a bad kid. Yeah. I got fucked up on drugs. It could happen to your kid. It could happen to anybody's kid. Yeah. And you really should have really shut his mouth, you know? And, you know, but I could understand, too, like I did squander an opportunity and this and that. But listen, bro, I got hooked on drugs. It's not like I did that on purpose. Yeah. It's not like I did that on purpose. Or it's not like I went out that night to kill that cop or to be with a guy. You know, like that's not what happened. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like ridiculous, yeah. you know? And Chaz, you know, he yeah. really is. He's I, a real uh, disappointment that, you know? Robert De Niro. De Niro's a good guy. De Niro never opened his mouth. Mm-hmm. He never said anything about anything. Mm-hmm. He, he just... Stayed neutral, and that's what you're supposed to do. Because he can't say this or that. If he sticks up for me, everybody else is going to motherfuck him. Yeah. But he sticks up, you know what I mean? Then You know what I mean? You can't, so he did the smart thing. But Chaz is not smart. Chaz is stupid, yeah. and that's why he said all that. He could have just said, listen, uh, you know, it's a terrible thing for everyone involved. 
especially for the cops family and for the in-laws family. Um, unfortunately, I don't know the facts in the case, so I'd like not to comment at this, this time, but I hope everything works out. Okay. That's all. Yeah. What's wrong with that? Instead, I've got nothing to say to kids. You're a sharp go off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would you tell him? It's got something to say to you. You're a jerk off. <laughs> he really is. I reached out to him and I reached out to some people on his team. I was trying to get him on for an episode as well. But um, if I do, I'll be sure to ask him about his comments <laughs> and I'll text you and let you know what the fuck he says <laughs> before we release the episode. No, but it's, you're going to show him what I said. I don't give a fuck. But just show him, say, this is the reason why. Yeah. Because his mother and father, yeah. that's why. Yeah. They're saying in a tap. I'll say it in English. Respect the dog for his owner. If you think I'm a dog, you respect me for my owners, my mother and father, who were nothing but good to you. My mom used to bring food, homemade food on the set so Chaz and De Niro could eat because, you know, we were there for long hours when we were rehearsing. You know what I mean? My mom went out of her way to be nice to these people, and this is what this guy does. He goes in bad because he thinks the cops love him. Like, all of a sudden, now nah, he's a fucking, he's pro-cop. He was watching wise guys whack people out and not cooperating with the cops. But now all of a sudden, he's got his little fucking drags around in his little <laughs> pee. He's like, you tell him he's a rat. He's a real, he's a real rat. He's not a stuff guy like in the movie. If he got in trouble like that in real life, he would tell on his father. His father would be the for him. Yeah. So who's in the stand up? Who are some of the guys? And he showed it. When I got in trouble, what a rat he is, yeah. you know? Who, who are some of the guys? They should have called the movie The Rat. They should have called the movie The Rat. <laughs> um, <laughs> who are some of the guys in The Sopranos that were walking around like they were, you know, big shit? I mean, you got, like, you know, what's his name? Tony Sharico, you know, uh, Paulie Walnuts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I heard he was bad-mouthing me, too. And then we worked on this Woody Allen film. And I heard he was talking all this shit about me. And then when he sees me, he comes up to me, he goes, welcome home. He goes, welcome home. Right? I'm saying to myself, welcome home. That's what you want to say? What about all these other people saying that you were saying all this shit about me? I heard you was in jail. he was in jail too for cold. They see somebody down and they want to kick you. They're a bunch of scumbags. You don't do that. Yeah, you do I not mean. do that. Especially like... I'm the type of guy, if one of them got in trouble, even, I don't give a fuck about what people in the business think about me. Yeah. If this guy was my friend and he got in trouble, I'm going to go see him. Yeah. And when it's all said and done, you respect me more than the assholes who didn't. Because yeah. you'll know they're a bunch of worms and they're little no backbone weasels. Yeah. But this guy at least had some balls and he came to see me. No, and uh, honestly, I agree with everything you're saying. And two, uh, your impression of him was spot on. But um, <laughs> we're, winding, we're winding down here. I don't want to keep you for too much more time, but... Um, you were on the you're on the set of the Irishman when they were filming it, and Robert De Niro, uh, I read, actually came up to you and said something to you. Actually, spoke to you. Uh, yeah, well, I, I got invited to the set by his hair guy, the guy who did my hair in the Woody Allen film, the one I was in with uh, with uh, the Rico. Gotcha. He did it because I wear a hair, I wear a hairpiece in the movie, and he's Bob's personal hair guy, Jerry mm -hmm. Popolis. Mm -hmm. And he remembered where I lived when he came to to do some some stuff for the hair piece. He had contour my head, measured it. And he remembered where I lived, and I was we, they were shooting right near there. And he messaged me on Instagram at like five in the morning. He's like, "Hey, Lilo," he goes, "We're gonna be right near where you live." He goes, "You should come in and say hello to Bob. He's got a light day today. Love to see you." So I went down there, and it was like I wanted to see fucking Fred, uh, like Fred Monster, because he had on the. 
He had all those like platform shoes, yeah, so he yeah. was like, you know, six feet. He's got like these green contact lenses in. He looks so weird. <laughs> but it was him, you know? Yeah. But, 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 you know, like, because you had that CGI. So yeah, when you yeah, do yeah. it on film, it's whatever CGI they did, it looked normal. Yeah. But in real life, it looks off. But a film captures things differently, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit, like you said, De Niro came up to you. What, what did he say to you? Like, that was the first time you've seen him, right? Since you, you went away. And I don't know if you guys had been in contact before that, but prior to you, like when you were early on in your career, he almost took you like under his wing, right? Like, like almost like a mentor to you. So kind of tell me what he had to say and, and, and how, it, what it meant to you that he, whatever he ended up telling you. You know, he said to me, you know, he, he knew I spoke to his daughter because I was doing my documentary and I wanted him to see the trailer. Mm-hmm. He mentioned that and he also, then he, and then he slowed down. And he said, are you okay? Are you okay? Kept asking me if I was okay. Real concern, like genuine concern. Yeah. And uh, yeah, very nice. I mean, we spoke for like maybe a minute or two because he was on his way out, but it was mm-hmm. nice. To, yeah, but, but, it, but even that, like that had to mean something to you because like you said, you have these other guys who fucking trash you to the media, like... Um, like Paulie Walnuts and fucking uh, Chaz. So what does that mean to you for like De Niro, who's like the guy who originally kind of gave you your shot and is still kind of there all these years later and then to be there, even if it was something small like that, still for him, the way he reacted. Yeah, but you know, like, exactly. Well, Texas Cotton shows the kind of guy that he is, you know, shows the kind of man that he is. Like, you know, Paulie Walnuts, come on. You know, these guys are fucking crazy, you know, Chaz. Shut the fuck up. Shut up. That's Chaz too when he was he got no respect for him. And his I get more respect in his neighborhood than he does. They don't even like him there, bro. Trust me. He's a fucking punk. Ask him about when he went to this guy hot he went to this guy Hot Dog's funeral, right? Hot Dog was like a known guy in the neighborhood. Everyone knew Hot Dog. Chaz tried to go there. He tried because he thought he was fucking Chaz. He went over there, he tried to cut they tried to cut the line. Because there was like a line literally around the block because everybody knew Hot Dog. Yeah. Ask Chaz, hey, Chaz, what happened when you try to cut the line on Hot Dog's funeral? What'd they tell you? Get the fuck in the back. In the back. They told get the fuck in the back. What punk. I got, I got a couple more questions for you and then I'll let you go. Uh, I don't want to keep you for too much longer. But um, So you've gotten back into acting as you mentioned a couple of your projects documentary you're doing which is great i didn't even know you're doing that i was going to ask you if that was something you plan on doing because your story itself is just fucking roller coasters right like emotions from beginning to end just up and down i think it's great that you're doing that um, um documentary out it's the documentary is called wasted talent i gotta check it out that's awesome i i, I didn't even know that that, that was a that's a thing but I, I gotta check that out um what's uh what's next for you acting wise like what's what's some of the things you're working on what, what's what's coming up well, I got a film. I got a few things coming out. I have a film that I'm also a producer on called The Fury. Uh, I play a you know a member of law enforcement. It's like a vigilante, really slick, cool movie. A lot of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm a producer on that as well. My, my really good friend Victor Rios. Uh, he's got a role in the film, but he's the executive producer. I'm the producer, and he also directed it. So that's going to be, we're pretty much almost finished with that. We're doing some music and some, so I would say maybe, well, now you never know if it's Corona, but we were hoping for like maybe, maybe summer release, like, you know, Netflix, you know, Amazon, all of that. Um, I have another, I have another film called The Fifth Borough with Tara Reid. It's like a Staten Island, Staten Island neighborhood movie about, uh, you know, the main character, Nico, his daughter gets cancer. And, uh, you know, the cancer treatment costs, you know, a lot of money. So he's got to go back on the street. 
to uh, you know, you know, to make money for to keep his daughter alive. So that's another film that I did. And then there's another one called Made in Mexico, where I play like a, a Mexican, like a cartel guy with like the beard, the cowboy hat, speak with an accent. Um, that's called Made in Mexico. That'll be out. And then uh, I have a, a short film that I did with uh, the girl from The Sopranos, Jamie Lynn Sigler. Oh, nice. Uh, older daughter. Yeah, yeah. Who plays my wife in a in a in a short film called I'm on Fire. It's a, it's an 80s period piece, and it's really, really good. Like, I shave my head. You can see how bald I am with my mustache. I'm like a construction guy. I got my kids, my two sons. One of them didn't turn out the way I wanted. So, like, I'm going to put dad. I work in concrete. And uh, she's my wife, pregnant. And it's uh, it's pretty good. Uh, it's a pretty good little piece. That's awesome. The, 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 the attention that they put into detail and on that set from every, like, every table setting, every little thing. And that's what makes great film. That's why Robert De Niro made the Bronx Tale. Well, that's why the Bronx Tale was great. Because Robert De Niro paid attention to detail. I was there with him every single day for every little thing. You know what I mean? I learned so much from him and just like in the way to shoot a film, the wardrobe, the music, the editing, the ADR, everything. I've learned so much. And that's and I learned so much from De Niro because that was the first time I've seen all of this stuff. So I absorbed it the most. And like that was the first thing I had ever done. So I thought the way he was and the way he acted was like a standard way of doing things, but it wasn't. No one, no one put and paid attention to detail like Robert De Niro did in that film. Mm-hmm. And then everything else was like, you got guys with different haircuts every day. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, this is like, <laughs> yeah, like what is, you know? But then it makes you realize how special that film truly was. Yeah. And De Niro, the way the attention to detail, like every little, like the tie in place. I mean, every little thing. He would cut camera just to fix, you know, to move a tie, like a millimeter, a, millimeter, like a centimeter. And that's the big reason why I'm producer on this film right now. This is why they pay me to work to produce this film. I'm basically there for quality control, you know? I, I've worked with, you know, a lot of, you know, pretty, you know, name directors. And, you know, I've been on some... And I know, like, I just watch. Like, I see, like, when we're editing and stuff like that. And I'm not a type guy. I don't sugarcoat anything. I would tell someone to that, that sucks. Okay. Okay, that sucks. you got to change that because that punch looks so fake. So I think before he even punches him, you already got to cut back to the other guy with the gun. Yeah. And, you know, like, little things like that. Because, like I, don't, like, I don't understand some of these people. Like, they let things go. Like, did you see that punch? He was like three feet away from the guy's face. You're going to leave that in fucking film? Yeah. You got to cut that. You know, that's basically what I'm there. You know? yeah. But, uh, and I got to tell you what, man, looking pretty fucking, it's a $280,000 film. It looks like a $30 million film. Wait till you see this, brother. The beginning of the movie opens up in Kazakhstan, in the mountains. All right? That, that's, that Operation Wolfpack. What? It opens up in Almaty, Kazakhstan, but we shot it in Colorado to make it look like the mountain, you know, like yeah, Kazakhstan. Yeah. And what we come to find out is Kazakhstan is the home to the largest population of wolves in the world. So obviously, if the wolves are there, you got to hear them, right? So as soon as the fucking says three, 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 three pictures, and it cuts to an aerial shot from inside a fucking uh, a POV aerial shot from inside a helicopter. Mm-hmm. All you can hear when you see those big mountains covered with snow is you can hear on that big screen, bro. Surround sound. The whole theater's gonna shake. The whole fucking theater's 
Who's that thing you're gonna fear those wolves howling? You got me all fired up about it now. <laughs> yeah. so, but um, all right, I don't, I don't want to take any more of your time. You, you, you've been generous with the time here. I, I really appreciate you coming on, and I just want to say, as a big fan of yours, this has been like, this is great, man. Like, I, I wish we could have done it in person, but obviously with the circumstances of everything going on, um, I really appreciate. It. I told my cousin because we always quote the Bronx Tale, um, and like I told him I was getting you on, I was all fired up about it. So, and he got all excited. He was like, "Man, can you put me on Facetime? Leave me in the corner. Like, I, I like I just want to listen in on it." Like. Um, but no, dude, I really appreciate you coming on and, you know, your story is great. Like I said, a lot of ups and downs, but I'm, I'm really excited to see what you got coming up in the future. And I know it's, you got, you got your health back, you got your life together. And I, I'm, you know, I'm really happy for you. And I think it's going to be big things coming for you, uh, in the future, man. I'm still too, because Sonny didn't die. They didn't realize that he was a rat and they didn't realize that he was alive in the coffin and because he's a rat, he doesn't have a backbone, so he <laughs> slithered through this little hole. So there's going to be a new Bronx Tale. A Bronx Tale 2 is coming hey, out. Hey, if you, if, you need, if you need an extra, you let me know. If you need an extra, you let me know. I'll come on there. Yeah. All right. And they give, they're, giving away, they're giving away extra cheese for your popcorn. <laughs> because the movie about a rat. All right. All right, man. Hey, uh, one more quick question. One more quick question. My aunt actually asked me. She uh, she recently just got diagnosed with breast cancer. She was watching the Bronx Daily Night, and I told her that I was interviewing you Monday. And she goes, she had one question for you. She said, "I want to know because I told her you're, you're in a relationship now. Did your girlfriend pass the test?" Well, you know what? Some, you know, some have and some haven't. But you know what it is nowadays? Tell her it's so hard to do that with the alarm. So everything opens. But you give a mother like the like you know. Let me tell you something. That door test is right on, bro, because that's really? an extension of who you are. Yeah. If you can't do that little thing for me, I'm not even going to get to know you. Seriously, yeah. that's that's real right there, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's not going to get better from yeah. so. 100%. All right, man. Like I said, appreciate it. Looking forward to everything you got coming out in the future. We'll be in contact. We're going to send you like a little thank you basket with some some merchandise of our stuff. Um, really appreciate you coming on, man. I'm, I'm like, it's like a lifetime thing for me, man. What is I'm, love? I'm really happy you came on. My pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. Don't Have a good night. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.